crossroads and the future is completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. You're listening to The Growth Show with Mike Volpe. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Growth Show. I'm Mike Volpe, the Chief Marketing Officer at HubSpot. And The Growth Show is produced by Dave Gerhardt, also of HubSpot. And today I am joined by Cameron Harold, uh, who has done a number of things. He's built three different $100 million companies, so he knows a ton about growth. Uh, and he may be best known as the sort of the former COO of the world's largest residential junk removal company, which you're probably saying, well, what is that? But I'm going to say 800 got junk, and then you know exactly who I'm talking about, uh, where he helped grow revenues from $2 million to $106 million in just six years. Uh, so Cameron, thanks a ton for joining us. Really happy to have you in the show. Hey, Mike. Thanks very much. Now, um, there's so much to dive into here. You know, you've got a, you, uh, you've got a book out there called uh, How to Double Your Revenue and Profit in Three Years or Less. Um, there's all sorts of things that, you know, from that book and from other things and from knowing you that I wanted to dive into. But one thing recently that we were, we were just talking about was sort of you have an interesting philosophy on, on mission statements for companies. Sure. Talk to us about that. Yeah. So what, what's the best way to do a mission statement? So it's funny. I, I've always realized that business is actually really simple and we tend to overcomplicate it. And um, I remember when I was first taught about vision statements and mission statements back in school and the idea of getting all your employees together in a room and putting all your favorite words up on a board and voting on all your words and eliminating all the ones that got no votes and mashing up those leftover six or seven words into a sentence and calling that your mission statement. And then we'd say, you know, go team. Well, and they all kind of walk out of the room going, that's really hokey and it really doesn't do anything. So I knew in, intuitively that it didn't work. So years ago when we were building Boyd Auto Body, and it's now called Gerber in the United States, we had this idea of, of creating what we now call a vivid vision. And we did it at 1-800-GOT-JUNK as well. We called it a painted picture at the time. But the idea of the vivid vision is the entrepreneur or business leader goes three years out into the future, almost like they're going in a time machine three years out to December 31st of that three-year-out year. And they take a look at their entire company and they describe it in vivid detail as if it's already taken place and as if literally they're sitting three years in the future. They describe what the customers are saying about you, what your employees are saying, what your suppliers are saying. They describe marketing and IT and finance and operations and they describe every business area in vivid detail as if the company is already at that point three years in the future. Then they write it up in this three or four page document, usually get a great business writer or a communication writer to help make it jump off the page. And that three or four page vivid vision becomes the aligning document for everyone, for your customers, your suppliers, your employees. Everyone can see what the future looks like. And then they get to reverse engineer that and put the plans in place to help make it come true. So that's the document that is really now starting to really ignite companies all over the world. It's being used in 28 countries around the world now. And do you think that vivid vision, is that something where people might um, even do more than a document some companies, like a video or a presentation or other things, other ways that they could bring that to life? Is that something you would recommend for folks as well, maybe? It, it is. So the CEO's job is to craft the vivid vision and really get it in writing in three or four pages so everyone can read it. The problem with going to the next level of videos and pictures, that old adage of a picture says a thousand words is true. So you can have a vision board which kind of uh, shows what your vivid vision looks and feels like. But if someone else is looking at some of those individual pictures, they might see something that you didn't really intend to be as a part of 
that whole description. Um, so what I like to do is have business areas or individuals do vision boards for their own desk or their own work area that represent their feeling or their take on that vivid vision. Um, I also have seen some great CEOs, and we've worked with a bunch to help produce videos where they introduce the concept of the vivid vision and they roll it out in a great way that inspires people, but then the key is to then have everyone still read that written document because then you really are reverse engineering it. Sentence by sentence, you're coming up with a couple of key projects or initiatives that you're going to do over the next two or three years to make each sentence come true. So it is that power of that written word that really does align and that can build out the actual plans and the project maps to, uh, to make it come true. And, and tell us a little bit more about sort of the best practices for something like this. Like how specific should it be in terms of metrics or, you know, specific numbers or things like that that you're necessarily sure. shooting for? So should it be bigger picture than that? Yeah, it, it, so some of the metrics are in there, but again, it's more bigger picture. It's almost like, and it sounds a little flaky, but it's a concept that's used by the Olympic athletes and the high-performance athletes is they visualize themselves performing the event so they can almost see themselves and feel themselves performing the high jump or doing the gymnastics routine. So the idea of the CEO is almost as if you're standing in your office looking around and you describe the culture, you describe the energy, you describe the, the feeling and the pulse. Um, you, you kind of figure out how it all ties in. I was at a, a company here in Vancouver a couple of weeks ago with um, the founder of Hootsuite. And we were sitting in his office looking at his culture and you could almost see his excitement because what he was trying to build is kind of coming true. You know, I was sitting with this, the, uh, the governor of Arizona the other day, and he was talking about his vision for the state of Arizona and how to craft a vivid vision for everyone in the state. It's less about the metrics and more describing what you see, almost like the entrepreneur or business leader has a movie playing in their mind. It's writing down everything you can see so that others can figure out how to make that happen. So one of the things that I think some companies do, and we've done this here at HubSpot, is before, you know, leading up to a big product uh, you know, release or a big con uh, conference or something like that, is we've actually written well in advance of, of really building any of that stuff, the, the press release, and said, okay, well, this is the press release of this announcement, and this is like what, and now we need to go and do all the things in order to make that happen. We have to build product. We have to get customers on board. You know, we have to do all the marketing for it. We have to do the sales for it, like all these things. Is that, is that sort of like a miniature version of kind of what you're talking about? Or is, is something like that something that could fall out of? Could that be, could like the, the press release for a future product release be something that is maybe on the marketing team's, you know, vision board that you were talking about? Yeah, that's absolutely exactly what you're doing. So the future state, that vivid vision describes the future and then you look at your current state and you kind of do your SWOT analysis, just a quick look at where we are today and what are our current strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And then you try to bridge that delta from the future back to today and figure out how to make that come true. Very similar to how a homeowner would, would um, hire a contractor to build a house or do a renovation. You'd show them pictures and sketches and drawings. You'd pull photos out of magazines and you'd hand it to the contractor and say, build me this with this much money and in this much time. And the contractor would go away and they'd come back with the plans to make your vision come true. Have you ever encountered any companies where the, the, maybe the people in the company aren't able to bridge that gap well enough? I, I can imagine you know, some, some people or some organizations I've worked with over the years where the CEO could have this really big vision, but the people in the organization are maybe more 
they're a little bit more tactical and they have trouble sort of translating that big vision and what they need to do over the next couple quarters. Any tips or techniques there? Is that a case of, well, you maybe need to think about hiring different leadership for those groups or any, any ideas there? Yeah, and again, it's, it's go back to the analogy of building the home. The homeowner doesn't know how to build the house. We just know what we want it to look like. And the contractor doesn't have all full-time employees. They go out and they hire a sub-trade to do the electrical. And they hire a sub-trade to build the cabinets. And then we get you know, Wolf to build us the great stove. So if you don't have the employees internally to do everything to make each of the sentences come true, you hire part-time employees. You look for outsourced contractors. You get mentors and help to actually figure out how to get the skill set internally. The key is when you know where you're going, then you can figure out how to get there and you can start looking at what your org chart might look like three years in the future, what your org chart might look like two years in the future, what your org chart might look like one year out and you start seeing, geez, we might even have to hire ahead of the curve or, or it gives us reasons to. So when you're always clear on where you're going, then you can always be clearer on the plans. Too often what companies are doing is they keep building what they have and making it bigger. You know, effectively, they take this big giant hairball and they keep adding to it or that, that ball of elastic bands just making it bigger instead of saying, well, we're going off in this direction. How do we get there? Any risk that it focuses, like, focuses people on the future too much and they sort of, you know, maybe uh, like the sales team, for instance, maybe misses the numbers the next quarter because they're so focused on where they're going three years from now. Have you seen anything like that? Or, you know, because certainly some people in the company need to be focused on the kind of the day in, the day out and the short term tactical results. Uh, you yes. know, how do you, yeah. Yes and no. You, you need everyone to be fut- kind of future vision oriented so we know where we're going, but they need to execute on today. So it's kind of like the three people that are, are making bricks. And you ask the one guy what he's doing and he says, I'm making bricks. And you ask the second guy what he's doing. He says, I'm making bricks so that I can build a wall. And the third guy says, I'm building a cathedral for God. And the bricks I'm making are the walls for that cathedral. You know, at the end of the day, all three people are still making bricks. But the one who sees the bigger vision and knows what he's doing is much more aligned, much more inspired, and, and much more kind of part of the team. So there's no danger in having people aligned with the future. The key is to make sure that they execute on today. And again, going back to my homeowner analogy, the homeowner keeps talking to the contractor about, hey, I want that wolf stove with the cool red knobs. And the, home, the contractor keeps saying, yeah, we'll get there, but you know, we still got to do the foundation and put the electrical and the plumbing in. But trust me, the wolf stove will be there. So you always want people to know where you're going. Keep them focused in executing on today with quarterly top fives per business area, quarterly top fives per person, and even weekly and daily top fives where everyone is waking up in the morning focusing, but they know that their work is aligned with the bigger goals and bigger objectives. The other part of that is if you had some huge industry catastrophic event like you know September 11th where literally you had to completely pivot, wouldn't you love to have all of your employees completely aligned with some vision that if you needed to go at 90 degrees you could rather than trying to herd cats, which is kind of what happens when you don't have everybody aligned. It's much harder to get them to pivot quickly. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Can you share a little bit? So at 1-800-GOT-JUNK, like what, what was the original vivid vision that you guys had and, and how close did you end up coming and what were maybe the differences? I'm sure some things ended up better than you dreamed and some things probably weren't the same. And talk yeah. to us about that. Sure. So when I came in, Brian and I had been in a forum in EO together for a number of years and I came in as his chief operating officer. I was the, the 14th employee and when I left, we had about 3,000 employees system-wide. When I came in on, on day one in October of 2000, he handed me the 2003, what we call the painted picture, what I now call a vivid vision. 
And when, when I read this at the time, one and a half page document, I just had a big grin on my face because I'm like, awesome, now I know where we're going. Kind of get out of the way and let me build this sucker. Um, three years later, he handed me the 2006 Vivid Vision or Painted Picture and he dropped it on my desk and ran away laughing and he said, I don't know how you're going to do this one, but have fun. And I was so excited to pick up this new vision as the COO to figure out how do we get to reverse engineer it that it became incredible. Um, we put things down like being in the top 30 metros by 2003. And December 17th, 2003, we were in the top 30 metros in North America. We landed Minneapolis as our 30th metro. We were putting things down like being a globally admired brand. And that helped us align to, let, to end up, we were covered in 5,200 stories in the media, um, kind of name the media, and we were in there, including Oprah. We had a, about a seven-minute piece on Oprah Winfrey back in 2002 or 2003. We had metrics down like being uh, $100 million in revenue in 2006, and we set that in 2001. And literally at the end of 2006, we were $106 million in revenue. We'd taken that from $8 million in 2001 up to 2006. So um, when I joined in 2000, we were 2 million. So all of those things started to come true because we were very, very focused on where we were going and we could always reverse engineer that. It's funny, I even have a photo in my office of the Cheshire Cat from Alice in Wonderland because that old saying, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, again, it's, uh, it's sort of similar experiences at HubSpot where we, early on, we had this vision of, this really broad platform and this, you know, this sort of new movement within the marketing industry we wanted to sort of sim stimulate. And the interesting thing is from a, from a product and from so many other perspectives, even after working on it for a year or two, we still, you know, we were still only a third or half of the way there. I mean, it was, a, it was one of those things where for years we were sort of trying to fill out to this thing that we had kind of promised to a number of people and sort of had promised to ourselves and had kind of articulated sort of where we're going. So I, I think it's really interesting. And, and what's really cool about that, sort of what you're saying, is that it you don't need to kind of re-give, you don't need to give everyone their new to-do list every quarter, right? Because they they know big picture for the long term, kind of like where they're going. And yeah, and you know, some of the tactical stuff may shift a little bit, but you know, it's like the product team has like, oh crap, we have we have three years of work to do here, right? right. Uh, you know, well, yeah. Wouldn't it be amazing if, if you think about any of our listeners' companies right now or any, even any business area that any of our listeners are running, wouldn't it be amazing if every person in your company or business area could see in such vivid detail what the leader could see? You know, almost I use an example of the, the movie The Sound of Music where they're up in the, the Swiss Alps having a picnic. And if you've seen the movie, you could literally recreate that picnic scene. You know, you can see Julie Andrews with the kids singing and dancing and she's playing guitar and they have a picnic basket. But if I asked you to recreate the picnic scene and you'd never seen the movie, you might have a bunch of kids having a picnic at the ocean and playing baseball. <laughs> like, How could you possibly be on the wrong page? Well, it's because you haven't seen the movie. So there's incredible alignment that happens, incredible um, kind of feeling of, of a, being a part of the team. And then also everyone gets to make decisions with the same intuition that the leader has. I'm, I, I laugh at these CEOs and entrepreneurs that say that they're so intuitive when the reality is they're the only ones who have seen the movie. But if they would show that movie by writing it down in the three or four pages for everyone, if everyone could see what they could see, everyone would have that same intuition. Now, I want to jump to a, a little different topic here, which is, you know, you talk a lot about sort of the ups and downs of being an executive, being an entrepreneur, you know, three companies that all reached over 100 million in revenue that you're part of growing, like, 
there must have been some ups and downs. And I think all, all of our listeners have been through ups and downs. You know, we went through a lot of ups and downs here at HubSpot. You know, everyone always, they always tell you like, oh, yeah, it was so easy. And you guys, it seems like you guys are always successful. And you're like, well, <laughs> let me, let me tell you about a couple quarters where things you know, were pretty tough or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. People always talk about, you know, the, the seven or eight year overnight success story. Right. So there's, uh, there's always bumps in the road. What, what's your perspective on that? What, you know, when you talked to, you know, all these you know, yeah. executives that you work with now, like what, what's your perspective on that? How do you, how do people keep and maintain perspective through the ups and the downs? Well, I'll give you, I'll give you a big down was in um, July or August, October of 2000. One of my employees at a, a big internet company we were building, we just sold the company for 64 million us, sorry, 64 million Canadian, 42 million us um, to a public company. And I was stressed. I didn't know I was stressed. And a key exec tapped me on the shoulder to ask me if I was okay. And I collapsed on the floor of the elevator, started sobbing. Um, I had nine of the 10 uh, most stressful events happening simultaneously. My mom was dying of cancer. I just bought a house. My wife was pregnant. We'd gotten married three months before. I was moving back to Canada. I'd quit my job. The $64 million valuation was worth $3 million at the time of closing because the stock market had collapsed on us. Um, literally everything was, was collapsing. And I thought I was okay. But I had this, this metallic taste, this kind of aluminum foil taste at the back of my neck that turns out is a chemical secretion caused by stress. And I was written up that fall by the Wall Street Journal as one of four supernovas, a person whose career had gone very fast and flamed out with stress. What I learned from that episode was you have to really listen to your body. You have to listen to and, and trust your intuition. Um, you have to slow it down. And the other thing, and I was telling one of my kids, I have four kids, my oldest son the other day, I was telling him that this big science project that he was working so hard on, and I pulled him aside and I looked him in the eyes and I said, I want you to remember something. I'm really proud of how hard you're working, but remember that when you die, none of this really matters. So just be a little bit easier on yourself. Because at the end of the day, for all of our listeners, this is just what we do to have some money to be able to chase down our bucket lists and spend time with our friends and family. So we kind of shouldn't take ourselves so fucking seriously. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. And obviously you've, I mean, just a, a phenomenal personal story with everything that you went through. Very interesting. Now the other thing, and this is kind of a personal, because as a marketing guy, I really wanted to dive into this. So you, know, you mentioned this earlier and, and, you know, it's obviously came up in our research and what I know about you too. 5,000, over 5,000 media placements. And you mentioned a seven minute segment on Oprah, you know, New York times, wall street journal for a company that essentially hauls away trash. Like, I mean, how, wh how's that even work? Why does anyone even want to write about that first off? Like, how do you establish that? And how, I mean, forget about how do you get 5,000, how do you get 50 media mentions? Forget about 5,000. Well, and it's funny, it's too bad that this isn't going to air in time, but I'm actually running a free 60-minute Q&A tomorrow for people from all over the world on how to land free PR. <laughs> I'll send you the link to it later, and you can actually send it out on your feed if you'd like in yeah, advance. Totally. But I learned this years ago. When I was building a company called College Pro Painters, which is the largest residential house company on the planet, I learned that at the end of the day, people wake up in the morning as journalists wondering what the heck they're going to write about. And our role is to contact those journalists and say, hey, you have a couple minutes. I think I have a good story for you. Most of those people need good content. So in the end of the day, you're really doing them a favor. So what we did was we avoided email, we avoided press releases, and we literally picked up the phone and called journalists and said, do you have two minutes? I have a good story. 
That worked at College Pro Painters, which was as boring as watching paint dry. <laughs> it worked at Boyd Auto Body in Gerber, which was fixing cars that had been in car accidents. So at 1-800-GOT-JUNK, when Brian and I got together, he'd landed a few pieces in the media, and I'd been landing a bunch, and we said, let's keep trying it. And sure enough, it worked. We were not a sexy business, but we created an image and a brand that we could then tell the media about. We, we told the media that we were the, the best company to work for. We ended up being ranked as the number two company in all of Canada to work for and twice ranked number one in BC. But it's because we kept telling the media about the future, and they kept writing about our vivid vision. Everything we told, we, they would ask us a question about today, we would tell them about three years out. Um, and we learned that we were helping them. You know, I was covered literally in the current edition, the March 2015 edition of Fortune magazine. There's an article that talks about me and my approach to PR. Um, there's an article in the January edition of Forbes magazine talking about my approach with Vivid Vision. But all of that is me understanding the media needs content. So for all of your listeners, think about your content. Think about your entrepreneur story. Think about your culture story. Think about your overcoming adversity story. And remember that news isn't really news. News is a way that these media outlets attract eyeballs so that they can sell advertising. So they need more good stories. You're actually helping them. And imagine having to write a new story every day. You're going to run out of ideas. So pick up the phone and call the journalist. But was it you calling and the founder calling, or did you like? I mean, five thousand is like a lot, right? There must have been. You must have had a team. How? Who'd you hire for that team? Was it yeah. PR people? Was it? Was it journalists? Was it sales? Like yeah. who? Tell well, us about that. Yeah. So in the in the early days, it was Brian and I. We literally would spend about two hours a week pitching the media and just phoning. And then we hired a guy who worked for us in the trucks. The name was Tyler. He had no PR experience. He'd never been a journalist. In fact, he was a horrible writer. And we told him to just pick up the phone. Basically, he used to call it smile and dial. And he would call 35 to 40 journalists a week and just pitch them. And we gave him five stories to pitch for 12 months. We didn't give him any new ones, just keep pitching the same 12 stories. After he'd been landing about six or seven stories a month for the first year, we hired two more PR people. We hired Katie and Lindsay. And then we hired three additional ones the following year. So we ended up with six full-time in-house PR people who were averaging six to seven full stories per month per person. Um, and none of them had any journalist or PR experience at all. In fact, we never wanted anyone who had any PR experience because most PR people like to send out newswires and press releases. We wanted them picking up the phone. We also didn't want any writers because that's kind of insulting. When you send a written story to a writer, a journalist, they're like, I'm a writer. Why would you write a story? So you're automatically creating conflict. What I wanted was someone who could literally send five bullet points and say, hey, do you want to write a cool story around this? Wow. So, I mean. <laughs> I, do full, I do full speaking events on this stuff. Yeah, no, I know. It's, it, it's fascinating. Away. And so you had no PR agencies either, right? No, I hate PR agencies. <laughs> Why do you hate PR agencies? Because they're full, they're, they lie and teach us that, that they have all these inside tracks and they don't. They hire 25-year-olds and make them smile and dial. So, and, and you're paying $5,000 a month to have a person one day a week when you could pay $5,000 a month to have them five days a week. They, they've, they've pulled the wool over our eyes and pretended that they have all these secrets and they don't. It's so just, all the, so all the, all the, you know, the, the, the conventional wisdom that PR agencies have all these connections with media because they're at the special cocktail parties that none of us get to go to and hanging out with all the people in the media, you're saying that's all, that's all total BS and they're just doing what you were doing. It's complete BS. And by the yeah. way, when we get off our call, I'll do a quick five minute call with you. I have a hundred million dollar business idea that if you want, you and I can partner on it and it'll blow the doors off the PR industry. 
<laughs> I love it. Awesome. Um, cool. So, okay. Any, so literally it sounds like just hi, hire someone who is uh, sort of that sales gene of sort of not afraid of hearing no, basically. Right. Right. And then, and then someone, it sounds like they're not necessarily the right people to come up with the story ideas, but so someone else comes up with the story ideas like you or founder or whatever, and hey, then, and then give them those story ideas and just set them loose. Right. You think about HubSpot, you've got five stories. You've got a culture story. You have your industry game changing story. You've got your overcoming adversity story. You have your, you know, leveraging technology story and you've got like pick another one. Give them, give them each of those five stories and come up with five bullet points per story. So you're overcoming adversity story. What are your five bullet points that you will always mention? And then let them pitch those and hire somebody who likes to cold call, is good at over, you know, handling adversity, can handle rejection. You know, if they get a, if they get somebody saying no, they're like, oh, I'm halfway in the door. Like they spoke to me versus, <laughs> you know, a marketing person when they get a no, they're like, oh, I got a no. And they run away. A salesperson's like, damn, I'm halfway in. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they, they remember my name now. That's, um, yes. And then hire someone who respects the journalist's time and can actually help them because what you're doing is helping them by giving them stories, by giving them content. Love it. Awesome. Okay. So you also do a lot of speaking and you coach people on speaking and things like that. What, this is kind of more of a fun question. What's the one thing that people do when they speak that drives you nuts? They don't, they're not themselves. I, I, what drives me nuts about some of the speakers is they get up on stage and all of a sudden they're, hi, my name is Cameron Harold and I'm a speaker with, and like, oh, who are you? Or they're so polished that they look like they're doing a Shakespearean play. <laughs> You know, where I'm just a small town kid from northern Canada and I don't know how to talk American and I don't know how to talk much slower than I do, but I know how to give real value and I know how to put real passion in there and I know that every time I'm on stage has got to be an opening night performance because it's the last time these people might see me and I'm just going to give it. And then when I leave, I'm kind of exhausted. But what drives me nuts is the people that try to perform because this isn't a Shakespearean play. Any, any tip, aside from it sounds like being yourself out of that would obviously be a tip, but any other kind of quick tips or things like that, I'll tell you, you know, one thing that always annoys me or, or, or that also is a tip is that it, so many people, when they finish their presentation, like here's how they end. It's like, oh, great, and this is what I just talked about, blah, 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 blah. Okay, thanks. This, and, right? now, and now, do you, know, do, do you guys have any questions for me? Uh-huh. And by ask, by doing that, they've killed any applause they would have gotten. <laughs> like the best way to get applause in a presentation is just say, Thank you for listening to my presentation. And then just sit there and wait. And people will, they, they will clap. No matter how bad the presentation was, they will clap because that's what humans are trained to do. But yeah. I can't tell you the number of people I see that are you know, inexperienced pre- presenters, maybe you know, first few times or whatever, even people have been doing it for more but haven't really thought about it. At the end, they're sort of like, oh, and now you know, I'd love to take any questions. And as soon as you say that, then no one's going to clap because they're waiting for someone to ask a question, right? And that's, yeah. that's one thing that I, I see people do it all the time. And it's like, no, like, claim your applause. Like you earned it. You know, just by getting up on stage and having the guts to do that, like you were in that applause, you know, don't, don't ruin it. Yeah. I don't know. One, what's, of, yeah. one of my best, one of my best closers was one of my biggest risks. It's, it's my talk that is on Ted.com. And I did a talk four and a half, five years ago. That's been on the Ted site for five years about raising kids to be entrepreneurs. And it was originally called the raising kids to be entrepreneurs instead of lawyers. But I finished with a two minute video that was developed by grasshopper.com, a, a guy that actually coached in PR and culture, David Hauser. And David's video about inspiring kids to be entrepreneurs just wrapped this speech up in this unbelievable blanket. And when it finished, I just said, thank you. And the place erupted. And I think it just left everyone with chills. It was dangerous to switch from me speaking into a video, but the video was so powerful and so connected to the purpose that 
in the 18 minutes I was given, um, it was a great ending. But it, yeah, well, and and you punctuated it properly at the end. Like, I, I bet you the video just ended, people would have been like, uh, I don't know. But the fact you, you say thank you, and I was like, oh, right, that's our cue to applause, right? So, yeah, I love it. Yeah, awesome. it was, and it was a very kind of humble thank you. And, yes, uh, yeah, the way the way you convey that thank you is, yeah, of course, of course, yes. Love it. Um, well, listen, I think, you know, I, I feel like this is the kind of thing where I feel like we should uh, take, you know, a few months and review some other folks and get some other people on the show. And then there's a whole bunch of other things I actually wanted to dive in with you, but maybe we'll have you back in the future because uh, I want to be respectful of our listeners and sort of the time promise we make to them. So, um, you know, Cameron, thanks a ton for being on the show. Really appreciate having uh, had you here. You said awesome comments that, uh, you know, all the stuff about the vis- vivid vision, I think is really important for our listeners to, to hear and something they can definitely put into practice within their company. So thank you so much for being on the show. You're welcome, Mike. Thank, thanks very much for reaching out and for having me. I appreciate it. No, it was a lot of fun. And so to all of our listeners, thank you for listening to The Growth Show. Uh, I'm Mike Volpe, uh, the host, and Dave Gerhardt is our producer. You can learn more about the show at hubspot.com slash podcast and find all the previous episodes in iTunes. Just search for The Growth Show. And if you like the show, we love to get reviews. Those five-star reviews are our favorite kind. Thanks a ton for joining us, and we'll talk to you again soon. But now you're recording. You don't, now you're shrugging at me, so you don't know. So I don't know if you're recording. Okay, that's great, awesome. So what's the vote on the donuts from this morning? How do they? How do they? I agree, they're very, very good. Uh, but in comparison to the other ones that we've gotten, it, okay, you've been saving that all day, or did you just take that? Okay, there's only one more of those, by the way, the maple bacon. There's only one of those left. That's been the hot, the hot one, yeah. These outtakes are great or the outtakes from the other? Okay.